I'm Robin. And I'm Wayne. We're investors at VMG Partners, and we help build iconic consumer brands. Every day, some of the world's most fascinating founders share their stories with us before they've made it. Their highs and lows. Mistakes and triumphs. But always extraordinary results. And now we're sharing these stories with you. This is Unfinished Biz. Credit cards, debt. I had a brother loan me like $25,000. And he said, you know, if this thing work, works, you pay me back. Otherwise, you're going to be washing my car a lot. On this episode of Unfinished Biz, we're focusing on an often behind the scenes, but undeniably huge part of the consumer brand industry, the food broker. And there's nobody better positioned to explain how it all works than legendary food broker and founder of Presence Marketing, Bill Weiland, the man who not only lives for food, but knows what works. Grain-free, people want to call it paleo, and to me, paleo is more like a moment in time. I like a paleo burst on the package, and I like grain-free as the nomenclature that drives it. Find out how Bill conquered the natural food market and built a food brokerage empire with nothing more than a big idea and a bigger dose of confidence. Unfinished Biz starts now. Robin, what do you think of when I say Bellagio? I think fountains, I think Vegas, buffet, no? Not this time. We're talking about a different Bill Lagio, named after the man himself, Bill Wyland. Okay. And it's also his house, but it's also become the center of the natural food industry. But we're going to learn a little bit more about that when we speak with Bill. Bill's been a powerful force as the founder of Presence Marketing, a leading natural food brokerage. For folks who don't know, a broker's got deep relationships with retailers and helps emerging brands get on store shelves. We had a chance to sit down with the man himself at the massive annual food convention Expo East in Baltimore back in September. So in the Wayback Machine, let's talk about me getting an awakening regarding health and wellness, natural living, which parlayed into a career in the health and wellness industry. So I'm 16 years old, and my sister Mary says, man, you got hypoglycemia or something. I'm like, what are you talking about? And she's, well, like, you're crabby until you eat a Snickers bar or something. And I'm like, shut up, bitch. And <laughs> I, I said, Mary, come on, man. Are you kidding me? She said, look, you can't go a day without eating candy. I'll bet you 10 bucks, which was like a king's ransom at the time. So sure enough, at 3 in the afternoon, I was getting the shakes, and I ate like a Jolly Rancher. I said, holy cow, I think you might have something here. So I started talking with her, and she introduced me to things like Hansen's pineapple coconut juice and whole wheat banana bread, and I just, a, a, a switch was flipped. I got a job at a natural food store in the city, started taking the train down there, started reading books from all the early health enthusiasts like Dr. Pavel Arola, Rudolph Ballantine, Norman Walker, things on juice therapy or Ayurveda, or Misho Kushi books on macrobiotics, just immersed myself in the culture. Haven't had a job outside of the natural products industry since coming up on my 55th birthday. And my progression was, you know, retail into sales. And round about 27 years old, I had 11 years experience in the business. I decided I was going to start a brokerage. And it was a perfect setup. I had no money no business plan, a week at college under my belt. So swung for the fences. How could you fail? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> you know, funny you said that's what I said, but it, I, I had some looks askance across the table. Literally, I was like, you know what? I'd rather you talk behind my back because nobody <laughs> was believing this was going to work. And, and what's a brokerage and why, why did you feel the market needed one? 
Well, to simplify it, you know, a food broker is a position you take when you want manufacturers who are trying to showcase their wares, build their brands in the retail sector, hire us on a commission basis instead of trying to hire their own direct sales force to go build their brand. So paid on a commission basis, we hired teams that would set up the wholesale distributor, such things as you know new items, promotions, uh, managed spend rate, and then we'd have people to carry it out to retail. So we'd have retail merchandisers and sales reps. And the marketplace is kind of set up to support that to varying degrees, depending on what customer you're talking about. You know, the, the way products go to market today is through a food broker system. Over the years, we added some critical intelligence to our model, which kind of helps us, you know, stand apart from the rest of the trade because we do a lot of work on the innovation side, on the trend reporting side, and uh, we have a lot of longstanding relationships with key manufacturers as a result. But getting to the point back to the, where you started a food brokerage, were there, why did you feel like the market needed one? Well, I was working for New Chapter Vitamins at the time, and my son Bill just uh, turned 34, heading into the U.S. Army full-time. Being uh, he- Yeah, heading to Georgia November 20th. You know, really proud of him. Uh, but he moved in with me full-time when he was five years old, and I knew I couldn't do I was doing like six-day travel for New Chapter, so I had to rein it in a little bit. And I had worked for a food broker in the Midwest uh, years earlier, so I decided I'd give it a shot, and I made, you know, I conver- converted a new chapter to a client of my brokerage services, and then kicked it off in a one-bedroom apartment and just started signing deals. So I remember by the end of that first year, I think we did about 190,000 in commission revenue and ended up with five employees, three or four of which were asked to hold their paychecks occasionally on a Friday. <laughs> <laughs> and and how many uh, how many clients did you have at that point after that first year? We were somewhere around 25. It wasn't necessarily a scintillating uh, list, though we did have some early strong brands like Westbray and some existing relationships after almost 28 years, Traditional Medicinals and Lundberg. But, you know, our number three or four brand was like a tofu pudding pop. So, I mean, we were really stretching back then. Pretty much anyone who had how'd a you clean get, ingredient deck would, would hire us. How'd you get the tofu pudding pop? <laughs> you know, I mean, when you go back almost 30 years, there was not the inventive caliber of cuisine in natural and organic that you see today. It was rough ride. I think I'm still digesting a whole wheat brownie <laughs> I ate in 1990. <laughs> Walk us through sort of the status of Whole Foods at that point. Was that Were they a meaningful part of the natural foods industry at that point? Well, they were in certain markets in the country. They weren't national yet. In fact, uh, we, we're talking circa 1990 right now. Whole Foods opened up in the Midwest in 1996. We were right there, and needless to say, that was a big pivotal moment in our evolution as a company. Um, we started out regionally. We expanded our geographic model to cover the Southwest and the Rocky Mountains right around 1996-97 for the simple reason that we saw consolidation happening. It was only occurring at the manufacturer level at the time. Retailers weren't really buying retailers. Um, Distributors weren't combining forces, but brands were starting to be acquired by consumer products, good companies, and we knew eventually it it would... move into the service sector. So we thought if we were positioned in the entire center of the country, we could leverage going east or west much more efficiently. 
and we opted to do that in uh, 2007. At what point did Whole Foods become a centerpiece for presence marketing, or did you feel that did you feel like both organizations kind of grew together? Well, I do, and and they were an immediate force. I mean, the Midwest, Chicago, had never seen a store like that. When I started Presence Marketing, to give you some perspective, the largest store in the Midwest in 1990 was doing like $3 million in annual sales. So when you started having stores that could talk about doing that, you know, weekly and then daily, you know, in some instances, um, it was a pretty meteoric rise. I mean, the Midwest has become one of their, their best regions. You know, lots of stores, very well run. Uh, powerhouse. So yes, we did grow alongside them and also expanded our offerings into uh, other classes of trade. You know, so we started doing business with conventional retailers too in the uh, later 1990s. So how, how quickly did Presence become a, a, national, a national broker? So it was 2007. So we finished the year 2006, 80 employees made the decision we were going to go national. We had a two-year plan turned into basically about a nine-month plan. So we went 80 employees to 163 between 2006 and 2007. You know, and, and that was great because you know there was consolidation that was interesting to people, and we didn't feel that we would be at risk if we were in a one-stop shop by class of retailer. In other words. People thought that manufacturers wanted to hire one broker to cover natural, or natural, conventional, Target, Walmart, you know, whoever was going to emerge. And now there's going to be specialization. We made the bet that we lock it down and we become the best in natural and specialty grocery. There's always going to be a market for us. And then we can go a la carte and encroach at our speed with some of these other customers. And as you were thinking through these strategies, was this you yourself or were there other members of the team that you were actually bouncing stuff off? Oh, yeah. I have partners, you know, Christine Jumis and um, Milt Zimmerman back in the earlier days. And then starting around 11 years ago, Brian Naylor. And we've got a gifted uh, team. Uh, those are just the equity holding partners that are privy to these types of conversations. But we got people like Andy Hendricks in the Northwest. You know, she's been in the business around 38 years, same as me, and Lorraine Kaiser running Whole Foods for us. Uh, she had her own brokerage in Texas for 16 years. Tracy Miedema spent time with General Mills and um, Earthbound Farm before coming on as our director of innovation. So we got a lot of horsepower in a lot of areas, and we do glean uh, you know, ideas from all of our top people as we're formulating our strategy. And, and how has the presence been funded historically? Is it a bootstrap business, or did you raise capital at any point? Well, Early on, I mean, we didn't really make money the first eight years, <laughs> and uh, I, I, that's where I came up with, like, you know, like, the de- I know the definition of all in, let me assure you, okay? <laughs> I woke up in year nine, and I was in kind of a cool house, you know, like a 3,500-square-foot house in Inverness, and I was like, really? I can do this and live in a cool house and go on cool vacations? So it was kind of that turning point, but it took us a long time, so truly a labor of love. Because we were growing up with the industry. You know, center of the country wasn't as sophisticated. Chicago market certainly wasn't as we were building our company. Every time it seemed like we were going to get ahead in order to close that big deal with an emerging or a already successful manufacturer, we had to have more resources than we had in the field. So we were just constantly reinvesting and chasing money. And there was really no EBITDA to speak of for quite some time. And what gave you the conviction over that sort of that eight, nine-year period that you were doing the right thing? 
you know, I was a real uh, staunch advocate for healthy living. You know, I was a young dad. I was 21 years old, made the decision, did all the research to raise my kids with no immunizations, all clean food, and I just couldn't do anything else. I mean, in my professional life, I was confident. I, mean, I never pictured necessarily what the industry would evolve to or over what timeline, but I was very confident that people were going to con- be, you know, continue to be educated about natural living, healthy ingredients, and that the industry would continue to thrive. So I did double down on it, and uh, in hindsight, really happy that during some of those trying times where we weren't paying our federal withholding taxes to subsidize some of our growth because there was nobody that was going to give us money. By the way, we're current on our taxes now for like the last 20 years, <laughs> just to be clear, very current. How did you fund the business during an eight to nine year period where you weren't making any money? Credit cards, debt. I had a brother loan me like $25,000 and he said, you know, if this thing's work, works, you pay me back. Otherwise, you're going to be washing my car a lot. And so, you know, there were little infusions of cash like that, but you could run pretty lean back then. It wasn't, the industry wasn't really, hadn't turned a corner and grown up yet. So, I mean, you were paying sales reps like twenty-five and $28,000, and there weren't a lot of expenses. We weren't traveling the country. So, you know, we could reasonably go to market with an enthusiastic bunch, and we had a pretty good principal list. I mean, we were definitely a player, like by the mid-90s. You know, we were, I've been at, every expo show so whatever 37 38 of them in a row expo west and we were definitely by by the mid 90s you know we had some really good clients on our roster and having big meetings it's just that it wasn't showing up on the bottom line because we were having to disproportionately invest in our growth but we always managed to do it wayne without any outside capital with the exception being a few infusions here and there and maxing out our credit cards during that time when you started seeing a bit of a groundswell, um, maybe not so much in the Midwest yet, but did you start seeing some competition in other brokerages uh, that were also trying to corner the market for, for the natural cl- channel? For sure. Yeah, there were, there were a lot of companies, you know, vying for share. And, you know, we paid careful attention to things that would give us a competitive advantage. So we're all doing basically the same thing, meaning building brands on a commission basis at retail. But we felt like we had better product knowledge than our competition. And we started bringing that into our meeting format. So we could be, call it the smartest people in the room, whether we're talking to an herbal extract company or an organic farming company or a company that had a particular nutritional bent. Uh, we were always you know, ahead of the curve on health and wellness information and food trending. So that became an immediate strength for us. And then we just treat our people great. You know, I read a business book called The Power of Kindness about seven or eight years ago where it breaks down kindness into 18 components and talks about how if you run your life this way, doors open. If you run your business this way, doors open and there's this magical flow. And I was like, wow. I mean, I kind of, ever since I used to protect my uh, young nephew, Chucky, from getting beat up by my seven older brothers, you know, I've kind of lived this way. And it really is powerful when you understand that culture is central to a very successful company and that culture is in fact a manufactured variable variable so you bring high level treatment to everybody Uh, you learn to bring conscious language which is productive solution oriented language to the fold and you have what we have today which is average six percent turnover in the last 10 years in an industry that traditionally has very high turnover rates did you intuitively always value that that level of culture even when you started or is this something that developed over time 
Well, I certainly valued it. I wouldn't say I was expert at delivering it necessarily, but really paid attention. So here's how it would go for me. I would watch one of my guys, you know, manager, chastise someone who dropped the ball on a, on a presentation in front of four or five people. And I thought, God, this is like yelling at the kid in front of their friends. And I was like, all right. So I would start building in these policies. And I would say no public reprimands, guys. So you don't do it in front of a buyer. So if a manager's with a, a sales rep and a buyer and the sales rep isn't like delivering, you take, take care of that offline. So that, that simple adjustment, very productive, very positive. And we, we have all kinds of tinkering like that where I made observations and thought, how are we going to not only put our people in the best position to be successful, you know, right job, right person, give them the tools they need, but also high-level, respectful treatment always, no matter what. And if someone was not performing well, you dealt with that with zest, but not with emotion or negativity. And it's very different than how many people handle their business. And how do new employees get to understand that that's the way that, that you guys do business? Is that is that sort of in a, in a handbook? Is that... How does that work? Well, they hear it, you know, and they hear it in the field and they hear it from our guys. So the great news for us when we're looking for, you know, when we have a position open up, like a sales rep position, a territory opens up, the resumes come flooding in. So we're rarely having to go chase after, you know, use headhunter services or anything like that. And on the business side, we have a hundred brands approximately trying to hire us on about a six or eight week cycle. These days we take on about 1% of them. So it's that whole, if we build it, they will come modeling, but we have really established that, that we concentrate on building value every day, and there are many ways to do that. To me, it starts with high-level, respectful treatment, and they hear such anecdotes from me when I'm addressing our national company. Hey, remember, you guys always have a direct line to me. I'm going to expect that the same kind of treatment that is established decorum, if you will, in management, all voices are heard you guys will get high-level conscientious treatment and everything you need to be successful on your journey at Presence Marketing. If you feel like you're not getting that, I want to hear from you. So, I mean, that kind of really gives people confidence when leadership is talking to people and that they see me. I talk to everybody the same. You know, certainly about different issues depending on the space they hold in my life, but I treat everybody great, full attention, courteous, supportive, friendly, and that sends a strong message too. As you continue to scale presence, was there, was there a key customer that you brought on, a brand that really changed the trajectory of presence at any point? I mean, I would say along the way there were a few noteworthy developments, like in the early days getting Muir Glen and Cascadian Farm before they were even owned by Small Planet or Imagine Foods. Um, there were certainly inflection points where we had established that we were – doing a really good job. So it would be the equivalent of a disruptive new food brand. So on the service side, we were commanding some attention. And we, we've continued over the years to really fare well in negotiation. So when a manufacturer says, I want to interview the marketplace, and we have a seat at the table, our close rates in those situations are off the charts. We were not held to the conventions of a more established company. In some ways, it was a benefit because let's say we got a hotshot sales rep working for a competitive broker. We're paying our reps 32 and he needs to make 50. I can say, fine, let's pay him 50. We just have to go out and get new business and, and make that work. So we, we were big believers in ourselves and we would make 
big commitments, and then we would back it up. And once we got ahead, you know, we haven't had a tough financial situation since that eighth year. So year nine, once we got over the hump, we have had great productive And what year growth. was that? Uh, that was like 1998, 1998, yeah. It's, it's such a people-driven business, and obviously mm-hmm. you spend a lot of time thinking about culture. As you hire new individuals, how do you think about like what are the features that you're looking for? Are there any characteristics that stand out? Yeah, I would say we're less resume readers than we are. We look for things like high EQ and communication skills and good uh, interpersonal relation skills. I mean, we want people who are high-functioning citizens, certainly having some background and skill set that is by design, useful for the position that we've uh, recording is um, is important. But yeah, I would say less than most companies. I mean, we're looking for a certain type of individual that fits our profile, which is, hey man, I mean, we're hardworking. In fact, one of my lines to my guys is, you know, you got to keep people somewhere between very busy and too much to do. I mean, that's where you want that guy who's up in the bottom of the ninth inning with the bases loaded, down by one, he's going to hit the ball hard somewhere. You want those people that in the clutch are going to come through, and you get the best out of people when they're somewhere between very busy and too much to do. There's not necessarily science behind that, but I can tell you, after years of observation, I've got a few of those. Another one my team likes is if I ask you to do 100 things and you do 99 of them perfectly, I only want to talk about the one you didn't. They're like... Great, Bill. But they, they, there's been a developed quirky sort of charm about that because we really do. We run presents like the friggin' Langham Hotel. I mean, it's like five-star hotel sort of expectation and training, and people appreciate that. They appreciate that you have that confidence in them to deliver and that you're giving them focused attunement into how they can be more effective. So between the time you became profitable in the late 90s to you became national in the kind of late two you know, 2000s before 20, you know, 2007, 2008, were there any notable challenges along the way? And then also what gave you the confidence to go national in 2007? Yeah, I would say we started to have challenges in the mid nineties that stimulated that sort of expansion into the Rockies, whereby we could lose business that had nothing to do with performance. You know, Miraglam was a classic example of that when they showed up at our door, we were their first broker they ever hired the canned tomato set was like two and a half feet at most of the stores in the Midwest. 18 months later, we had a couple hundred stores with four foot sets up and down, you know, like 20 or 24 linear feet of canned tomatoes. So we were killing it with those guys. And then they were bought at the time by Small Planet that had a different relationship, you know, with Acosta. And we lost that business, and everybody acknowledged, you guys are great. It's nothing to do with performance. And I was like, God, that sucks. I, w- I wish at least I could mess up and lose business. It would make me feel better. It, it, explain Small Planet and Acosta for people who don't know what those Thank are. Thank you. Yeah, so Small Planet was a, a group uh, you know, uh, related to a division within General Mills, and they're designed to build you know, based on consumer demand. Um, most of the large consumer products goods companies today are building by acquiring natural and organic brands. You know, General Mills was ahead of the curve, you know, mid-90s, making that bet and making some investments. And it was uh, prolific. I mean, there were all kinds of acquisitions into the late 90s. And without us being 
national, we were technically at risk. We still did a really good job with our regions. And until the other national brokers Advantage and Acosta really put resources into building natural, we were fairly well insulated from any trouble. But somewhere after the turn into the early 2000s, you know, brands had national options and we weren't there. So we were just gearing up. But when we do things, guys, we want to do it really well. We weren't feeling like the timing was quite right until that uh, late uh, fall of 2006, which is kind of when we made the decision to go national in 2007. And we knew we were going to do it undercapitalized, that we were going to have to count on manufacturers believing in us and giving us some business before we built out these teams. And it worked out magically. I mean, again, we made the commitment and we ran up 80 employees to 163 and virtually a two-year plan turned into nine months. And that was the big transformative moment of our journey. Did you think about acquiring other smaller brokerages to become national or do you always know that you wanted to build it organically? We definitely did. And we have along the way. When we first expanded into the Rocky Mountains and into Texas, we acquired brokerages. And then when we went national, we had three broker acquisitions. We brought top line sales and marketing on the East Coast, Karen Farrell, principal. Uh, they are a nutri- they were a nutrition body care focused um, business on the service side, on the brokerage side. We bought Lorraine Kaiser's company. Kaiser Sales and Marketing in Texas. She had been running it for 16 years. She now runs Global Whole Foods for us. We bought Andy Hendricks' company. She was the president of Mitzvah Marketing in the Northwest. So we did make acquisitions and built organically in the state of California. We built organically Maine to Florida, largely, except with that little tag-on addition with Karen's company. We built organically, just hired people, and you know that we built it, and manufacturers came. How'd you go about making those acquisitions? Were these sort of groups and people that you'd been keeping an eye out for a while, these sort of entrenched relationships, or are these absolutely sort of new relationships that had to be forged? A little bit of both, um, but in, in every instance, we at least had knowledge of who each other was, and in some cases, we had a pretty well-developed relationship. And then I had a good idea regarding what market-bearing offers were, and my thing was if someone's got momentum on their side they get market bearing or even market bearing plus and others you know we started negotiating at a much lower rate so we settled on a couple acquisitions at more like 50 percent of what we considered market value because you know these these companies particularly in the the rocky mountains in in southwest when we first expanded geographically uh they were clunky they had a lot of challenges and we thought you know we can help clean them up but we didn't want to pay top dollar so we did have a combination of building organically and acquisition as we expanded one other feature that we've done that no other service company has done is we have two brokerages so we have presence marketing and dynamic presence so literally cookie cutter divisions fully staffed with, you know, full bank of business manufacturers that we represent and sales reps, distributor account managers, et cetera. So it's, it's kind of nice for us because it helps us manage competitive issues. It also helps us, us keep the ratios better with our sales reps in terms of how much business they're attempting to influence with their retail customers. How did you fund these acquisitions? 
you know, we would put some money down by this point, you know, we're, we're profitable, you know, especially the ones into the, you know, late nineties and turn of the calendar in the two thousands. So we would put some money down and then negotiate an interest payout deal for between 30 and 36 months usually. Got it. Well, fast forward to being a, a national brokerage. When you, when you mentioned you're a national brokerage, are you nationally from a natural channel perspective or national in multiple channels across trade at that point in the 2007 In 2007. We're definitely natural and specialty grocery focused. The thing about, you know, so, so it's more like when people say they're national on the service side, they are indicating that they are covering all major markets coast to coast. The market continues to become more fragmented. We certainly have you know, starting from that point and having maybe 90% of our volume in natural food store environment, 85 to 90 to where today it's more like 70%, we're continuing to evolve natural products with conventional customers. And as mentioned earlier, what's great with that is it's not a one-size-fits-all situation. If you hire a broker for the natural class of trade nationally, they handle everything. Once you start getting into conventional customers, it's a la carte negotiations. So it sort of helps us because we can build at our own pace and we're not really at risk of losing any business because we're not a solution for our brands for all customers. It's just not important anymore. As the natural channel slowed down over time, has that been a challenge for presence marketing? It really hasn't. I mean, we've only had one year where we didn't grow double digits in the last you know, 15 or 16. And that was last year and it was kind of a perfect storm of different factors. We've rebounded nicely this year. The norm for us is that we would be typically growing at 50 to 100% better, greater than the channel rate. So if natural's up 10%, we're up 15. The fact that we have been nimble and able to expand, get our percentage of our total revenues declining in terms of natural food store environment building up our teams to cover more conventional customers like Kroger, like Target, et cetera, we are still engineering and experiencing that growth. Organically, we definitely grow faster than the trade because of the performance that our teams put on the field on a daily basis. So it starts with our veteran brands. They are typically growing faster than our competitors' veteran brands. We're getting all this cool, new, disruptive business and building revenue bases quickly because it's right product, right category, right time. And then we're diversifying our customer targets and expanding more with our conventional teams in terms of labor. So ratios are getting better. Our account managers have less chain business to manage, you know, shorter geography, better rotation. So combination of a lot of factors. Over time, you've been an investor in brands. When did that start? And what was the first brand? Well, I think it, it started with uh, the vitamin water acquisition because we were representing them at the time. And I think they, um, when they sold for, I think it was 4.2, I got to put my pinky by the corner of my mouth, 4.2 <laughs> billion, billion dollars. No. I got to say, man, I got the best high five ever. It was a spinning high five. It was tremendous. But we were fired at the time and we didn't have any equity. And I was like, wow, that sucks. So we decided at that point we were going to build a model. We didn't have the cash to invest in brands at that time. So we thought, you know, I'm going to build a fund. We're going to call it Omnipresence, and we're going to swap service for equity. So Zico was our first brand. We built it as a profit-sharing vehicle. So picture Zico comes to us. They want, want us to represent them. And I say, okay, we're interested. Love it. Mark Rampola. 
and we'd love to get involved in your uh, capital raise, but we don't have any money. What do you think if we swap service for equity? Because emerging brands, dollars are precious, and if you can save the cost of sales and go out and build, it's kind of a win-win. So that was a huge success for us. And over the years, we've had lots of great deals, you know, Justin's and Suja, to name a couple. But we've got about 45 brands in that fund. We give 30% of that money directly to all of our employees. So it is a profit-sharing vehicle, and it really allowed us to experience getting into the equity game without necessarily um, plunking down our own cash. And the selection of those brands, uh, the ones that you want to invest in, whether it's with hard dollars or fee-for-service, who makes that selection? That's me. That's, you know, my thing, guys, it's the, it's the combination of 38 years and living the lifestyle. Got a very good radar. Same with the selection side for just brands and calling categories that are going to hit ahead of the curve or brands that are going to be ready for prime time and successful in just a very simple evaluation process. Now, there's always, as Wayne knows, being an investor, there's always like right product, right time, but then there's some different operational or supply challenges or any of a number of things that can come up with brands. But we have a really good track record with both our choices on the representation side and our choices on the investment, whether it be the swap service for equity format I described or in more recent years, actually betting with our money. I've always thought the innovations that you've brought have made presence really special. What are some of the other innovations along the way that you felt really differentiated the firm? So I I can say that, you know, our teams realizing that no matter how sophisticated the industry get, it's kind of like almost like doubling down on old school services. We watched our competitors put more into data management services and headquarter calls, which, you know, we're robust in those areas for sure but in favor of boots on the street. And we always felt it was going to be really important to have a strong merchandising and sales force. So to this day, uh, we're really, we run light on top. So we're light on senior management and, and typical to light for a company our size on sort of that next level tier, you know, brand managers, sales managers, et cetera. And we run heavy on sales reps and merchandisers. And that's where I think we have a real competitive edge. So kind of old school values. I, I'm thinking something a little more fun than that. I'm talking about the Bellagio. Why don't you tell <laughs> us a little bit about that innovation? Okay, sure. So part of the magic for, for us guys is just our market recon and our market information. But we didn't formalize it until more recently because, among other things, I was on an airplane 35 times a year and just didn't have the bandwidth to be able to pull it together in a report format. So we made a big bet two and a half years ago. Uh, we moved to the northwest suburbs of Chicago from you know a different enclave in Chicago, private residence, and we built uh, what has become a real hub for creative ideas and built a team, and uh, the, the place is affectionately referred to as the Bellagio. And now in two and a half years, we've had over 500 meetings and gatherings, and it just kind of flips a script. All of a sudden, you're having meetings in a beautiful setting with organic farm-to-table food and craft cocktails, and I am spending, instead of an hour at Expo East, an hour at Expo West, and a crowded dinner once a year with my top brands, you know, they're staying overnight, we're playing ping pong, we're talking about love and life and building relationships. Additionally, it has allowed me to really refine our scope on 
trends, and we have a report we affectionately refer to as bankable trends, and we make the bold claim that we're never going to miss one. So that doesn't mean we can call every brand or every product 100% accurate, but we can call which categories are going to break out and often before the sales data would reflect it, bone broth being a notable and recent call out. Three years ago, we pegged bone broth when there was basically zero commerce as a $600 million annual category by 2020, and we are well on our way. What are some of your other favorite trends right now that you'd want to call out? Well, grain-free for sure. You know, grain-free, people want to call it paleo. And to me, paleo is more like a moment in time. I like a paleo burst on the package, and I like grain-free as the nomenclature that drives it. First of all, grain-free, the dietary choices aren't as restrictive as what was available during the Paleolithic period. The simplification is, you know, you eat more fat if you want to be thin, and if you eat more carbohydrates, you're going to be fat. People want to be more thoughtful about their carbohydrate consumption. They want to eat more fat, eat more protein. And if you can give them products that are familiar, but heretofore were not a nutrient-dense consumption event like a muffin or a tortilla or a piece of bread, they are willing to trade up. And if you can deliver with good taste and texture, it's, it's big time. So, so we're calling this category. It won't be separate sections generally. It will be bleed into categories throughout the store, but we'll call that hundreds of millions of dollars in the very near term. What about bitters? You love you love bitters. I love bitters. You know, you travel anywhere in the world, you eat a traditional meal, you get a balance of the five tastes. Sweet, salty, sour, savory, which is umami, and bitter. Bitters play a pronounced role in digestion. Turns out we have bitter receptors all over our body. They also play a tremendous role in immunity, uh, blood sugar regulation, and we just don't consume enough of them in our culture. There are some common bitters that people do eat, like cocoa's a bitter, sesame's a bitter, coffee's a bitter, but there's all these beautiful bitter plants that you can bring to people in liquid or food form, and with education, just like we as a collective have taken fat from being a bad word and negative in nutrition, to now most people know that at least some fat is good for them, and you're going to see a cascading effect there because actually fat is the most important nutrient for health. Give us five years, we're going to have people in the value-added sector, you know, the deep wellness seeker, talking about bitters as a provocative, health-giving taste. Me and my girlfriend, Elma, travel the country. We like to look up and eat at, you know, really nice restaurants and find the best bars. I am convinced, Wayne, that we have the best bar in the country in my house. Okay, we have a full-time mixologist. We make house bitters, infusions use fresh ingredients for all of our cocktails, and we curate our bottle selection. It's the best selection I've ever seen, you know, traveling the world and looking at bars. And we make great stuff. You know, my skills are pedestrian by contrast to our You're house mixologist. <laughs> but I, I, can, I make a great, let's talk about our bacon maple old-fashioned. I do about a teaspoon, teaspoon and a half of uh, maple syrup in a rocks glass over a big ice cube three fingers of a bacon-infused bourbon, and how about this? Six good dashes of Angostura bitters, a couple dashes of orange bitters, give it a, a few good stirs, and then finish off with an aromatic orange peel. Sunday brunch in a glass, and I definitely impart in my cocktails bitters in 80% of the infusions that I make because it's just adding character, adding brightness, um, adding complexity, and I also know I'm protecting the liver of my customers and adding to their vitality. 
Well, I've always found it to be the consolation prize after getting our ass kicked in ping pong. Tell us about <laughs> tell us about your ping pong skills. You know, ping pong is a game of technique. Who knew? I was always a pretty good player. Like a couple of years ago, if we were at a party and there's 25 people, I'm usually in the finals. Well, I played this young gentleman who is a friend of my girlfriend's daughter, and his name is Zach. And he tried out for the Olympics, and he runs tournaments. And I noticed when he hits his paddle, it's like a Frisbee. You know, it's not the same angle, right? And, and so I started playing against him, and my game just took a jump. So now I went from being a, a very good player to almost a savant. And most recently, <laughs> I beat this kid. Now I beat – this is like grasshopper. The savant. Yeah. savant. <laughs> grasshopper has beaten the master. So now I'm beating him. So now it's getting to be a real deal. What, what, what inspired the ping pong in the first place? You know, growing up, I played four sports, you know, ping pong, baseball, football, basketball. And, you know, those were the easy ones to play in the neighborhood. And it was just a lot of fun. I haven't played it a lot because I didn't have a table until I moved to my new place, in the, you know, two and a half years ago. So I started playing more often. And once I got a little context on technique, I took to it well. In fact, I'm giving lessons to people now because <laughs> I get some pretty good players come over, but they, uh, they're a little bit overmatched until and if <laughs> I give them lessons. Wayne's been a very good student, and his game is getting better and better. Appreciate that. Is there For anyone sure. who's, uh, who you, you've invited over and who's actually beaten you? I have had occasional losses, but not where I have been able to exact revenge, except for Vincent from Dang, who caught me in one game about two years ago, and I think he's dodging me. But I'm saying, Vincent, if you're out there, I'll give you four points up to 11 any day, any time. What about Steven from Forager? I, I think he's... He stepped up his game against you. Steven's really good. I mean, he'll play me tough, but I'll still beat him. I mean, we'll play for hours at a time, and we'll play like 35 series, and I will typically beat him 33 series to two or something along those lines. But he's tough. I mean, we have the Mickey Mouse sweat thing going on in our shirts, and people who think ping pong is not an athletic game should come over and uh, check out what goes on. Tell us about the basketball court. Well, I will. We've got a... um, NBA caliber court. It's about a 55-footer, so shorter than a typical NBA court, but it's the five-layer hardwood maple, the NBA backboards. Really great. We have a tremendous time playing there. I'll tell you who showed up with some game is a one Mr. Wayne Wu. I was guarding him. I mean, Who's I was that? on this guy like a cheap suit, you know? Uh, and keep, he was keep draining. going, Bill. Wayne was draining like twenty-two footers with me on him. We played twenty-one, and and it was. I would have to say that afternoon was the best brand of ball that I've seen played uh, in the two and a half years at the Bellagio. I, so I, we didn't script that part. That, that that's that's coming organically from Bill Wyland right here. <laughs> see, this is this is what the downfall of a podcast versus actual video. I I, I need to see this to believe it. So. <laughs> He can jump too. Who knew? <laughs> Who knew? He gets up in the air about you know twenty inches on his jump shot. It was incredible. So it's one of the first people that came over to the Bellagio. The one thing that I'm disappointed I still haven't gotten to witness is the windy uh, slide that you were going to put in the middle of the house. What's any updates on that? I do have an update. So uh, just for reference, we built a chamber in the center of the house, and we were going to have a 35-foot slide that uh, shot you out down in the basement. And my goal was to be able to have a martini and slide down and not (laughs) spill a drop. Unfortunately, we had a little engineering update, and we would have to build, because of code, a separate stairway to make that happen. So now, Wayne, what you'll see early next year is an extra little uh, powder room in the basement, a bigger pantry in the kitchen, 
and off of the master, me and oh, Elmar are going to have a library boo, or something. That's, that's, I know. That's not know, nearly that was, as fun. That was, a, that was an emotional blow for me, too. But he continues to acquire property. Tell us about the expansion of the Bellagio compound. So we're in an area where the market is really down on the real, uh, real estate side. Um, they're five-acre lots minimum in Barrington Hills. Nobody wants to live there. There's no new money coming in because unless you're a horse farmer, no one wants to keep up five acres. Certainly the young, uh, upward mobly, uh, upwardly mobile don't. So what we are seeing are mid-1990 and late-1990 price points. So we decided that we were going to expand with an eye on the future for our kids. So we'd have properties for the kids. I've got two, um, Bill and Molly, and, and Alma, my girlfriend, has two, Kiana and Kevin. So we bought five acres across the street, empty lot. We bought a house down the, down the road connected to that, another five acres, eight bedrooms, uh, we have it's seven truly of those. a compound. Seven of those will be for traveling dignitaries. And then with 12 employees at our house, for God's sake, um, Elma sometimes gets a little crispy around the edges, wants a little more downtime. And so we bought a house next to that, which is kind of like second family home right down the street. And it gives us a little more privacy. So you'll probably see a rhythm, Wayne, where we're staying there Monday through Wednesday and at the Bellagio Thursday through the weekend. Everything we're doing is above board. You never saw any weed at the house, right, Wayne? So it's all good. I thought, can, I, thought you, I thought you called cannabis as the next trend. <laughs> yeah, that's CBD oil. Didn't and, see and it. it, is. it, it <laughs> Didn't is. see it. Just smelled it. <laughs> that's, no, it's, it's just it's just going through your skin and on the in the in the oil. Mm-hmm. Uh, we talked about the history of presence. Tell us about presence today. Sure. So presence will be twenty eight years old. First of the year, we've got five hundred and twenty five full time people. Again, 70% of our business is you know, really distributor-based business, natural and specialty grocery. Uh, we continue to grow greater than the channel. We have retention rates, as mentioned, uh, off the charts, you know, 6% turnover rates on an annual basis. And our intention is to build value long-term. I literally can't imagine a scenario where we would sell the company or, or certainly sell the company and walk away. There might be inflection points we're taking in some capital like if we want to expand and really get after it you know canada and walmart and costco and e-commerce and military you know that may require more than organic build out you know we might bring in a, a financing partner but i would fully anticipate that i would be steering this ship and in fact part of building the place in chicago and hiring staff was to cut down my travel so i could have a long-term vision as a leader of presence marketing, love providing jobs, love putting new brands on the map and being solutions for some of the biggest companies. You know, we work with Clorox, we work with Coca-Cola, we work with General Mills on their value-added portfolio. We take a lot of pride in going out and building success and providing great opportunities for people. What do you think the effect will be with the channel shift to online growing in the acquisition of Whole Foods by Amazon. What will be the effect on the industry and then presence marketing? So I think, you know, it's a, it's very important to sort of segment when you're having that conversation and, and discuss what is really going to occur logically, you know, even in five years, 10 years, if you talk to some people, they will swear that, you know, 25% of food is going to be showing up at your doorstep bought in the mail. I don't think we'll ever sniff 10%. You know, we're 2% now. We, we won't sniff 10%. I think you'll see more convenient options, especially in large metro areas where maybe someone's getting off a train and scanning a kiosk 
and products delivered or any of the number of services now that are in place that deliver groceries, pick and click kind of stuff. But brick and mortar, man, we're social creatures. You know, the fact that you can buy a T-shirt online didn't put out out of business all these clothiers. I mean, some of them are having a tough time, but we have to remember in 1970, there was like 300 malls. There's like 1,250 malls now in the U.S., just too many malls. So, I mean, there's like there's still like a 96% retail occupancy rate, something off the charts. So I think reports of a product moving to e-commerce in its unvarnished statement sounds like, wow, you know, retailers are in trouble. I think most of that is going to run through retail brick and mortar, either pick it up, it's ready for you, your order, and you got special parking, there's handicap parking, then there's pick and click parking, and you come in, someone runs it out to your car, or it's 15-minute parking, you run in and grab it, or it's delivered from the store to your local, you know, your local residence. So I, I think there will still be certainly a, a high evolution there. But I, I think there's a big win for Whole Foods and Sprouts and other large format operators, you know, still Target and Kroger, you know, make the experience for people really interesting and double down on your commitment to clean deck, natural and organic, because it's going to continue to be a rocket ship. What will presence look like in 10 years and what will your role be? More than national, so figure Canada at the very least, maybe more. We will probably have services we're not even planning right now. You know, maybe we'll be talking about import, export. We'll certainly have an e-commerce division. We'll have a military division, full food so- service, club, um, basically all key sectors of food traveling through the marketplace. You know, we'll probably be we're 525 people right now. We'll probably be closer to a few thousand uh, at that point. And I would say there is a good likelihood that I would still be CEO and at the very least chairman of the board and holding a daily active role. I mean, I'm working more than I have except for maybe those first five years and having an absolute ball. Right after the break, we'll talk more with our guest, Presence Marketing founder Bill Wyland, the food broker with good connections and even better stories. Unfinished Biz is a VMG Partners production. You can catch up on all of our episodes at unfinishedbiz.com and chat with us on Twitter at unfin underscore biz. Subscribe to our podcast for free on iTunes or any podcast app of your choice. We're always looking for questions and suggestions, so reach out. And now, back to our episode with Presence Marketing founder and CEO, Bill Wyland. So what was a bet the company moment for you? Well, I I certainly would say going national. That was big time because we were undercapitalized at the time and we really needed a bunch of our manufacturer partners to step up and support us. So, for example, when we went east, after we were already engaged in building out Southern California and then about to tackle Northern California, remember, we thought two years that we were going to wait on the east coast. Uh, There were marketplace circumstances that were just lending themselves toward us realizing the moment was now. And when we invested out there and started hiring people, we had a couple of of, uh, brand partners really step up and support us. And Cliff Bar and Traditional Medicinals hired us when we were woefully understaffed with the understanding that we would continue to hire people and really nail it, uh, Maine to Florida. So it's nice when you have that track record and the relationships that people will help be part of the solution. 
we went we by this time of course we've developed a line of credit with a bank so we did we did spend some funny money i want to say we went into our line of credit for a couple million bucks and just hired people so a lot of most companies would not do that so think about it we were you know 20 ish years in the business and uh almost 20 years at the time and we were hiring staff on bank money you know and banking on funny money exactly exactly and counting on the fact that we would build a great team and that the manufacturers would hire us the business would follow and that is exactly what happened but that was pivotal you know, I've had my business partners say, um, you know, Christine and Milton, even, you know, Brian Naylor, who joined us around that time, like, um, well, what if that didn't work? And I said, then we'd be bleep. <laughs> <laughs> you can say it. <laughs> well, there's, there's tremendous highs and lows as an entrepreneur. Is there a particular low point that stands out in your mind? I would say it was that moment when... Um, we were at a broker meeting shortly after we got back from Expo West. Actually, we were at a broker meeting after Muir Glenn had got had been acquired, and I and they were given ambiguous answers about what the future looks like. And I raised my hand and I asked what I thought was a really great question. I said, "Well, we're not all going to get canned now, are we?" <laughs> I, thought, I thought I was so funny, and then a week later we got fired. So I don't know if I ushered us out the door quicker with that <laughs> ill-timed comment. But uh, the truth is that was a rough one because we thought, man, a partnership couldn't be any better than what we had with Mira Glenn, and it wasn't good enough because there were other circumstances. But it's that classic, what doesn't kill you makes you better, because some of those challenging points helped direct our efforts into fortifying and putting ourselves in a better position so that we could adapt to the new model, which was that you know, brands are going to be acquired. I mean, when I hear people, you know, talk negatively about consumer products, goods companies like, you know, Coke and Pepsi and General Mills, like, oh, it's terrible. They were bought by these guys. I said, are you kidding me? These guys are a necessary part of the ecosystem. And how great is it that instead of continuing to line extend products that don't have the best ingredients and to give those guys credit, they're even cleaning up a lot of their traditional offerings. They are banking on this, man. They are investing their money building natural and organic brands and we all know as investors right a lot of these natural and organic brands if they're not acquired at a certain point are going to run out of bandwidth whether it's money or expertise and a lot of those partnerships are examples of the very best in the financing world so conversely is there a notable high point for you i mean i would say that Fully going national in nine months after uh, thinking it would take two years. I mean, cementing that with the acquisition of Mitzvah in the Northwest, I would say that was that was powerful for us because we knew we could see the way it was going. Like we had a lot of naysayers when we embarked on that journey, and this, you know, I was used to hearing that in my career. But uh, presents are too late; they're not going to be able to pull it off. So doing it, you know, I mean, fifteen months ahead of schedule and doing it well. That was probably, you know, the high the high point for me. And what keeps you up at night? Well, you know, my girlfriend Elma, uh, my South <laughs> Korean uh, Pomeranians, Pookie and Coco, and cool movies. Because you know what I say. My one of my my uh, mantras is don't sweat the big stuff. And honestly, guys, at this point, I am dare I say 
anticipatory in posture with the next great challenge because it makes us better. I mean, when you got a strong wind in your life, a strong wind at your back in life, you know, you don't bring out the best in yourself or other people. The build at presence was messy. You know, again, a scrappy Irish kid with a week of college under his belt, no financing, lots of, you know, no business plan. And we learn things along the way you couldn't possibly learn in a classroom environment or any other way. So we're battle tested and I just, you know, I'm, I'm chill, man. I'm as, I'm as close to unflappable as can be. And I got 525 professionals behind me that are warriors, you know, guys like Brian Naylor, you know, who Wayne knows. I want to make sure I get Brian a great shout, uh, shout out and, you know, Christine and Milt, but, but a lot of our guys that just are such pros and handle their business with the same kind of confidence and positive, productive energy. Uh, we just, every day is a good day. Robin, think you can take Bill on in ping pong? I think he's got a private instructor, so I'm going to go with no. Don't worry about it. He's kicked my ass many times, too. But next time you see him, ask him about that basketball game we had. Okay. But in all honesty, if I had to pick one person who's had one of the biggest roles in growing iconic brands in the natural food and beverage space, it'd have to be my man, Bill. He's been an insider's insider, a true behind-the-scenes market maker who predicts trends, and he's made them happen. I mean, truth is, most people outside the industry wouldn't know him, but for founders in the space, he's a big deal. And if he bets on your company, it's a big bet. Bill's work and personal life overlap a lot these days. And lucky for us, the man loves to lay it all out there. You know, mixology is, is a lot of fun. And I am very happy that we're seeing great recent research on certain aspects of food. For example, fat is really good for you. You know, the truth is saturated fat's got nothing to do with heart disease. That could be a topic unto itself. High quality fat is the most important ingredient in a healthy diet. Drinking coffee is good for you. It's just one of those things. If you drink high quality coffee in measured quantities, you're going to live longer. It's proven. Same with booze. I mean, the ethanol is good for your circulatory system. The polyphenols are great for you. It's just that you have to drink in measured quantities depending on, you know, your kind of lineage and body type and all that. So I tell people I drink six days a week now and I never felt better. And uh, because we're drinking infusions with, you know, fresh ingredients, fresh juices, house-made bitters, um, all of our syrups, house-made. So if we're using simple syrup, it's organic cane cooked down in our kitchen. So we've brought mixology to high art. And I'm not a trained mixologist, but I pretend to be at home, as Wayne knows. And I'm pretty handy behind the bar. And uh, if any of you guys are in the Chicago suburbs anytime soon, stop by the Bellagio and I'll make you a, uh, a beautiful infusion. Rumor is that you like to stay up and watch movies. You know, I was uh, one of 13 children, so my mom was 45 and my dad was 52 when I was born, so I was largely unchaperoned. One could say raised by wolves. So when I was nine years old, I would stay up and watch TV until the Star Spangled Banner came on and then fuzz. <laughs> this is pre-cable. So literally for 45 years, I've been staying up till 2, 3 in the morning. So for many years, I, I had to, to answer the bell and had lots of early flights and early meetings. Now, my day starts around 10, 30, 11, and I carry it into the evening. So whereas most people like Wayne's a crack of dawn guy, and he's going by 8 o'clock, he's already got a few hours in. 
I pick it up on the back end. So I do all my reading and my creative work in the nighttime. So yes, me and my girl, Alma, we're typically up late and movies are my meditation and hers too. We love movies, good cinema. We got a nice theater at the house and we probably watch six or seven movies on a good week. Bill Weiland, you ready to play our signature game of rapid fire? In 60 seconds, answer as many questions as you can. First thing that comes to your mind. You ready? Let's roll. The first thing you read every day is? CNN. What's your favorite movie? Usual Suspects. Who's your celebrity crush? Wayne Wu. Karaoke song you're most likely to belt out? Uh, Wow, that's tough. I've got a whole bunch of them, guys. Depends how many cocktails I've had. I would say Boogie Woogie Bugle Boy. What's your guilty pleasure? A Diplomatico Reserve Rum Milkshake with Mascarpone Cheese and Organic Birthday Cake. First car you ever drove? Was a Dodge or a Plymouth Gold Duster. Do you recline on airplanes? Yes. If you could drink one thing for the rest of your life besides water, what do you choose? Chartreuse. What was your last New Year's resolution? To read something that wasn't health, wellness, and business oriented. If you were stranded on an island, you could only bring one thing. What would it be? Pookie. What's the last hashtag you used? Never tweeted. Where's the next place you'd like to travel? Miami Beach. If a movie was made... So for any uh, emerging entrepreneurs out there, any words of wisdom? Yes. I oftentimes, if I'm addressing a group of young entrepreneurs, I start out with, go get a job. And then I wait for the chuckles. And then I say, all right, what I'm looking for, and I see it now is the fire in some of your eyes, like, screw him, man, I got this. And just to expect that it is going to be very challenging and understand what it takes to throw all in. So who knows what tomorrow holds, but what I can promise you is anything that's worth having in life is going to come with a great deal of attention and effort. And that doesn't necessarily mean difficulty. You know, there's there's great reads out there, and, and among other things, uh, you know, don't sweat the big stuff. You know, my, my uh, common mantra is if you can learn to have a productive frame of mind and use conscious language – when you're tackling whatever comes in your path, it sets up an environment where you can be highly productive and highly successful and learn what lessons are secretly hidden in that uh, particular tumult. Well, on behalf of me and Robin, thanks for joining us on Unfinished Biz, Bill. It's my pleasure. Thanks, guys. Thank you. You've been listening to Unfinished Biz. I'm Robin. And I'm Wayne. We'll be back on the next episode with... The one and only John Foraker, former CEO of Annie's and current CEO of Fresh Children's Food Brand, Once Upon a Farm. He's an absolute industry legend. Oh, and he just so happens to be Jennifer Garner's business partner. I go, I will leave Annie's and come be the CEO of this company and grow this thing. I go, I'm in if you're in. She goes, I'm in if you're in. And, oh, wow. and, and we had a high five moment. And then I'm like, okay, well, all right, we're connected on this. That's next time on Unfinished Biz. Unfinished Biz is a VMG Partners production. You can subscribe to our show for free in any podcast app of your choice. Send us questions, comments, and feedback on Twitter at unfin underscore biz 
and visit us at unfinishedbiz.com.